Welcome to season two of An Unexpected Launch, a podcast sharing stories of people thriving after an unexpected circumstance. I'm continually amazed by the stories of those who use a challenging life event to propel themselves forward and to discover unexpected gifts and beauty. Jody and Eric are celebrating their 24th wedding anniversary this month and have two children. By all accounts, their family looked fairly typical. That was until news of Eric's affair broke on the five o'clock news four years ago. Eric's infidelity, their marriage, and family were thrust into the spotlight. Jody found herself navigating a journey that she hadn't planned for, and writing became her way forward. Through her writing, Jody began to heal her heart and inspire others. She boldly and unapologetically chronicles saving her marriage, her love for Eric, and their commitment to each other and their family. Jody's a freelance writer and a creator of the blog Utter Imperfection. You can connect with her on her blog, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Jody's an open book. Her writing is raw, vulnerable, beautiful, and inspires hope. Jody, you and I share a mission, and that's the hope that by sharing our stories, we can help others feel less alone and facilitate their healing process. Jody, welcome to an unexpected launch. Hi, Kirsten. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining. So let's just dive right in. We are both straight shooters. Uh, knowing that it was going to be broadcast on the news, your husband, Eric, admitted to you that he had an affair with a coworker. What did you feel in that moment after his admission? Trying to recall that moment four years later is really difficult. There's, there's a lot of things from that period that are crystal clear and solidified in my brain, and there are a lot of things that are very fuzzy and hard to recall. But I remember um, a racing heart that I could not contain, um, that I felt might turn into something medical, some type of emergency. Uh, I remember forgetting how to breathe in that moment. I remember feeling like I had no idea what was truth and what was fiction in my life anymore. What was your biggest fear after he, he shared that news? At that exact moment? Yes. And I think it was all of a sudden and out of nowhere, not knowing who I was married to anymore. Mm-hmm. Wondering and doubting who, who, he, who he was. Right, because never, ever once in my thinking or, or understanding or um, vision into who he was, did I ever think him capable of having an affair. Mm-hmm. You hear that phrase a lot. If, um, if my husband or if my wife cheated, I'd be gone. A lot of people have this preconceived notion of what they would do in response to infidelity. And I didn't um, have the benefit of that because it never once crossed my mind that I would need to consider that situation and what I would do. It just, it just never, never came up, never occurred to me. So you know that this is going to break on the news. And so you, you know that your children are going to be exposed to this information. 
How did you prepare and support them for what was to come? I found out just ahead of, of finding out that it was going to be broadcast on the news, our story. Um, the reason it was is because Eric was a public employee. And apparently that makes um, his private life public news. Um, I understand this and I don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm of two minds of this. He um, is, was a public employee and so um, he is a certain code of conduct um, and behavior is expected of him. However, I think this is different for um, public employees in the realm of um, first responders or um, public office, um, even though it's really no different than somebody working down at the landfill or um, in garbage pickup and recycling. They're also public employees, but their private lives aren't often broadcast on the five o'clock news. So I both do and don't understand it. Um, but but I, we had, I had very little time to process what had happened in our marriage, um, that it was going to be on the news and that we couldn't protect our children from the knowledge. And had we had that opportunity, we most certainly would have protected them from the knowledge that their dad had been unfaithful. That isn't something we would ever have chosen to burden them with or lay at their feet. Mm-hmm. So we were moving very quickly in that time period. And we just, we just knew we had to tell them what they were about to hear on the news. And so we sat them down and I felt like it was Eric's responsibility to explain to them the choice he had made and his behavior. And we did so, and it was excruciating. It was another moment where my heart raced to a speed that didn't feel sustainable. I forgot how to breathe. And I, I didn't want to be living through that moment, but I didn't have a choice. And how old were your children at that time? They were 15 and 13. Mm-hmm. And, and how, did they, how did they respond? They responded very differently um, overall. In that initial moment, when Eric explained to them what he'd done, um, what our life as a family was going to look like for the next few weeks, um, what his behavior meant for our family and for our marriage, for his job. Um, he, he told them what they needed to know, um, what was age appropriate. Um, and then he asked if they had any questions and he invited a dialogue. And I don't believe my son said much of anything. And my daughter had one question in response to what her dad had told her. And she said, dad, did you do this before I was born or after? Mm -hmm. And that was heartbreaking. Yeah. Because she wanted to know, did you do this to mom or did you also do this to me? Is how I interpreted that question. Mm-hmm. And so he told her it was after. And it's fuzzy after that. I think that that was pretty much the end of that conversation. Um, it was clear that well, they were blindsided just like I was. Their whole world changed. And I'm sure everything they thought they knew about their dad and their mom and our marriage and our family 
um, became a big question in their minds. And so going forward, you know, we offered to be an open book and answer all their questions and have any amount of dialogue that they needed to be able to process this. And we offered professional help in the form of therapy and counseling. And we said, we can go together as a family. I can just go with you. You can go by yourself, whatever you need, whatever you want. And they weren't open to that and they still aren't. And to date, they still choose not to talk about it. That's their way forward. And that was very hard for me because I'm the opposite. My way forward is to talk about it, um, to process it, to learn from it and move forward from it. And in talking with our couples counselor, while we did couples therapy, we explained to her their their stance and, and their way forward and how they didn't want to talk about it. And she said, okay, yeah, typical. And so unfortunately what's going to happen now is they will have to deal with this in their adult lives and in their adult relationships because they'll deal with it at some point, whether they want to or not. And since they're choosing not to deal with it now, unfortunately, they'll probably have to deal with it later, which was another blow and another heartbreak because I, of course I don't want that for my kids. Like your children, my children have been, quite hesitant to enter into counseling to talk about what's happened in our family. And, and like you, I, it, it worries me to, to know that they're not talking about it now because without talking about it and addressing it, it's not going to go away. And we can't force our children to talk about it. It's, it's something that I think they, they still are trying to process and wrap their head around and, and, your children's lives and my children's lives changed in an instant. And we didn't have that opportunity, as you said, to properly prepare them. And so it is, it's really hard. And I think that all we can do as parents is exactly what you've done, which is offer counseling, offer to answer any questions, to be that open book, and just to hope that with time, they will begin to open up and and, um, begin to process that. Yeah, and I have some firsthand knowledge of the flip side of this scenario. As a little girl, I was sexually abused for years by a male relative. And once it was finally discovered, because he was abusing other girls, not just me, um, that's one of the first things my mom did to try and help me was take me to a child psychologist. But I would not talk to her. Um, I didn't respond to any of her um, methods to try and get me to communicate about the trauma that I had been through. I just either wasn't able or interested. And um, I can't remember, it was too long ago and I was too young to recall why I wouldn't talk to her, Um, but I just wouldn't. And she tried for a number of weeks. And if I remember correctly, um, I think she told my mom, look, I, I can't help her because she doesn't want to talk. So this isn't the right time. You know, maybe she will in the future, maybe she won't. But right now I'm, I'm not able to help her. And today, it's not something that I suffer from and that holds me back in my life. I've dealt with it, I've moved on from it, and it doesn't define me. So I do have some hope that um, they'll be able to move past this. Well, and I think with the loving environment that, that you're providing and that, that openness, uh, they know that they can come to you at any time. And I think that 
that's that's what's really important for children is to know that they are loved and that their their conversations and questions are safe. Yes. So Jody, this was an incredibly painful revelation and something that's incredibly painful for for anybody to to go through. However, you you went through this process in the public eye because this information came out in the news. So, do you remember what it was like to be thrust into the public spotlight with um, with Eric's affair? Yes. <laughs> um, it was excruciating. It was um, surreal. It was. How did we end up here? Why is this considered news? What's what should be a private matter in our family? It was embarrassing because, again, it's not who I thought we were, and I, it was frustrating because it shaped it shaped my next moves and didn't necessarily give me a choice in my course of action. For instance, I don't know if I would have talked about Eric's infidelity with friends and family, but at that point I felt like I had no choice because I knew that they were going to be hearing about it. It was inescapable. It was on the television news, on the radio news, in our newspaper. It was on social media, on Facebook, and um, the websites that the news organizations in our community were on. It was everywhere, and so I knew that there was no no avoiding it with people that we know and love. And so I found myself probably before I was ready explaining the situation to them. Um, And at first it felt like a huge burden, all of it, like insult on top of injury, insult in our wounds. But very quickly it turned into, I guess, what you'd call a blessing. I feel like that word is overused in a platitude, but I don't really know what other word I would use because I realized very quickly that this story was told for us and against our will, and it was told poorly, um, inaccurately, and um, with a very one-sided narrative. And I realized very quickly that I didn't have a gag order about this thing that had happened in my marriage. And I feel too often the betrayed feel like they have to suffer through their betrayal in silence and in shame and secrecy. Uh, and when they do that, I feel like they have to stuff everything that's happened down deep where it, it can't hurt them. And what that does, though, is it makes it fester. And it's only ever going to get worse instead of better in those circumstances. And I realized none of that was, was going to be my story, that I had no reason not to talk about our story because it had already been done. But... I could take control of the narrative and tell the story, the whole story, and the rest of the story, which was definitely being left out in the narrative that you heard on the news. Well, I think it's incredibly powerful because, as you say, so many individuals don't feel comfortable sharing anything. Um, when there's infidelity and whether it's to protect their spouse, to protect them, to their privacy. 
as you as you state that that causes you to feel isolated and alone and and I I think it becomes more difficult to work through such a, a life event on your own and so you you did choose to stay um, to fight for yourself for Eric for your marriage and for your family and you initially felt weak because of your decision to stay. What would you say to others who are in your situation who feel weak or judged for choosing to stay with a spouse who is unfaithful? Yeah, I do remember feeling that way for just what was akin to what seemed like a split second. Um, And I think the reason that I felt my choice is to stay, I know that. There's, there's no question in my mind. My choice is to stay, to try to stay, to try and figure this out, where we went wrong and, and if we can rebuild and how we can um, build a more bulletproof marriage instead of this, this one that wasn't. Uh, and I thought, but that's, that's the weak thing to do, right? And I think that that is born of the way people talk about infidelity if, if my spouse cheated, I'd be gone. Once a cheater, always a cheater. Um, combined with what's going on in our culture, in our society today. And um, the rising up of women and from everything from the Women's March to the Me Too movement to the let's smash the patriarchy with every step and every breath we take these days and this this necessary correction that's happening that can sometimes feel like overcorrection. And I think all that was swirling in my brain. And for a split second, I thought, well, I know what I want to do, but gosh, is that the weak thing to do? And I had the luxury of having a really tight knit close group of friends that I floated this concept by. And I said, I know what I want to do, but it makes me feel like it's the weak thing to do. Uh, and they said, what? They said, why? If you are successful, if you are able to, to stay and, and learn to forgive, forgive and find a way forward together, that's one of the bravest, strongest, most courageous things we can think of. It's There's nothing weak about that choice. And just hearing people that know me and love me say that, completely dispelled any notion I had that what I was about to try to do was weak. In fact, it's the opposite. And I know now from having done it over the last four years and living through it, there's nothing weak about the choice to view someone not as their mistake, but more so what they do after. There's nothing weak about trying to learn how to forgive the unthinkable. Whether or not you stay in your marriage or not, I think forgiveness is always the best way forward because all it does is release you from a lifetime of bitterness. It doesn't excuse or condone anything that's been done to you. It doesn't assume any of the blame. It just says, I release myself from these negative feelings that are going to take me down and keep me there. And so what I would say to anyone in my position is no matter what you do, no matter what your choice is, no matter what direction you feel led to travel in, to stay and try and rebuild with your spouse or to leave and try and rebuild your life on your own, there's nothing weak about either choice. Either choice is going to take all the strength, all the stamina, 
all the perseverance, all the courage and vulnerability you won't think you're going to be able to muster, but you will. It's not important to know how you're going to do all those things. It's just important to start. And there's no weakness involved in any way forward from infidelity. Part of if rebuilding a relationship and repairing a relationship, should that be the path forward, is trust. What what could you share regarding rebuilding that trust? And it's not only in your spouse, but also how do you learn to trust your yourself, your instinct, and your choices? Here's where I'm at with trust today. And I'll, I'll take you back to, we started couples therapy immediately, probably the week or two after Eric confessed and um, we began living through the ordeal. And she told us, she told us it was going to take, she said um, on average, it usually takes couples about two years to recover from infidelity, whether or not they're able to maintain their marriage or whether or not they let it go. It's on average, it takes about two years to work through it. And I almost bolted because I thought I can't feel like this for two years. That was my initial reaction. And I didn't bolt though. I stayed put on the couch next to Eric and across from her. And one of the next things she said was, um, you know, we're going to deal with this trauma um, and we're going to work towards Jody, you being able to trust again. And I stopped her and I interrupted her and I said, well, (laughs) I hate to disappoint either one of you, but I don't see how that's possible because I trusted him fully and completely and he broke that trust. And I don't see how it's possible to trust him again, knowing what he's capable of and the choice that he was able to make. And she said, well, it takes time and it takes sincere apology and atonement and change behavior. And she started to explain to me how it is possible to trust again. And I, I didn't buy into any of it, but just sort of tabled the issue um, because we needed to, you know, just stay in the moment and work on the trauma and um, what we were experiencing in the moment. And not long after that, I came across a vintage Dr. Phil clip back in the day when he first um, started on the Oprah show. And he was talking to a woman who had experienced betrayal and she was bringing up similar concerns. I'm I'm not understanding how it was, how it would be possible to trust again. And he said, well, hold on. He goes, here's how you learn to trust again. You're going to learn to trust yourself. You're going to learn to trust your ability to get through anything and everything that happens to you. That's how you are going to learn to trust again. And in that moment, I thought, yes, there's my answer to that problem right there. I can trust that I will get through anything that happens to me. That I can do. I can't do that with Eric because nothing's changed since my initial reaction four years ago. I don't trust him because I know what he's capable of. But because of his after, because of everything he's done after the mistake he's made, I have immense hope in Eric, in his character, in his ability to make good choices going forward, in his trust in me to handle information and truth, I have immense hope 
that he won't ever make the choice to be unfaithful again. And that is born from everything he's done every moment of every day for the last four years. So that's where I'm at today. And I, it may sound sad and jaded that I'm not able to trust again, but it's my truth. And for me, having the hope that I do in Eric in our marriage is, is enough. And it feels like um, something very equitable to trust. Well, I think trust is, is so complicated. And I love the advice of, of beginning with yourself. And that's really where it, it has to begin is trusting in ourself first. It's hard to trust others if we can't trust ourselves. Yeah, and I think what you know specifically, you asked, how do you learn to trust in yourself? If that's if that's what you're going to foster is trust in yourself, how do you how do you learn that? Um, and I think learning to trust your instincts only comes from hindsight. I think it's having an instinct or a sense of intuition about something and ignoring it and not paying attention to it um, in in name of taking care of everybody else or maintaining the status quo or appearances, and then you're burned by it. And so I think in hindsight, we can look back and say, you know what, I knew better and I ignored it, um, is how you learn to trust your instinct. And as far as your choices and how you learn to trust yourself, I think it's living through these hard circumstances that we feel like might kill us, but then we, they don't, we make it through and we can even find a way to use our experience for good. And then I think that automatically translates into trust that you'll get through the next thing too, whatever it is, because there's going to be a next thing. There always is, right? Absolutely. Just you, you think, oh, there's going to be a day that I'm going to get there and it's just going to all be okay. Well, <laughs> that just doesn't exist because there's going to be, there's going to be high points and low points throughout life. And uh, there, there's just no escaping that. Exactly. One of the things that's come to mind during this whole experience is that brave and strong and capable women don't usually feel brave and strong and capable. I think we come to being able to own those adjectives about ourselves sometimes better through other people's eyes than through our own because inside our bodies and our brains, we're just doing what we need to do. We're just doing what needs to get done. We're just fighting to heal and live and learn and be better and that just all comes instinctually. And it's only when somebody on the outside says, wow, that's really strong. What you're, like my girlfriend said to me when I thought what I was doing might appear weak. And they said, no, 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 not at all. In fact, it's the opposite. You know, I couldn't agree with, with you more. And it's, it's fascinating because for many moments over the last four years, I have felt the most fearful, the most anxious, the most worried, the least confident. And what my friends, many of them have said is, you don't see yourself the way other people see you because the words that people were using for me, very similar to your friends, um, were strong and courageous. And I felt everything but that. And to your point, it was just getting up every day, putting one foot in front of the other. And for me, what was my true North Star was my children. And that is what kept me going. But I certainly did not feel strong or courageous at any step along the way. 
No, because trying to heal from a, a, a trauma to this extent while trying to help your kids heal from it as well is excruciating and it feels like you will not survive it. It never at any moment feels like I am doing this thing. I am good at it. I was born for this. It never feels like that. (laughs) How true. (laughs) So Jody, you were raised without the presence of your father. As you alluded to earlier, you are a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And so you're no stranger to adversity. What gave you the strength to move forward with Eric in love and grace? I mean, first and foremost, it was God. Eric and I had fallen away from having a good relationship or a close relationship with God. Um, I think we didn't think we needed it. I think we thought we knew enough. We were good people. But in the moment he told me, and I knew instantly that I wanted to try with him, if at all possible, I knew that was coming from God because it was so clear. It was so instant. And I never have questioned it even once since. And that's, that wasn't me. That if you knew me before this trauma, you wouldn't, I, I, I knew me before this trauma and that would not have been what I would predict would my response would be. I can um, hold a grudge like nobody's business and I'm really quite feisty when I feel like I've um, been let down or um, treated unfairly. Um, And in the past, my response to those things is to retreat and withhold love and withhold forgiveness and um, teach you a lesson about how you just treated me and, you know, things of that nature. And I realized in an instance that being harsh with people, especially with my husband, only ever brought me more of the same. It never brought me the things that I want more of, that I crave more of, which is love and understanding and empathy and connection and trust and I realized in an instant that my new way forward was going to be in love and forgiveness and grace and mercy and all these things that I had been miserly with before that moment. So along, along the way, and it's, it's been four years, this is, this has been a journey for you. Where have you turned to for inspiration? So about a year after Eric confessed. We had we finished couples counseling. What she told us was going to probably take two years took us a year. And at the same moment in time, at the same appointment, we drove up thinking, you know what? We think we're good here. We think we've gotten what we need from couples therapy. And we sat down across from our therapist and she said, hey, you know what? I think we're good here. I think you've gotten what you need from couples therapy. Now you just need to go work it. You just need to go use your tools. And so it was very affirming uh, for us that day. Um, we were at a good place. We've only ever had forward motion in our healing. Um, I've had, you know, personal setbacks and triggers to deal with. And Eric has too. Um, but, but as far as our marriage, it's only ever been strengthened and um, solidified and made better as we've gone forward. But about a year in um, to the healing process, I got stuck and felt like I was spinning my wheels because I didn't realize 
you know, I thought we were healing together as a couple, but I didn't realize we each had a lot of individual healing to do as well. And we put that on hold, um, unknowingly, unwittingly, just in the name of healing our marriage, but it did not translate into healing each other individually. And so in that feeling stuck and like I was spinning my wheels and, and um, moving forward personally in my new story, I got stuck in a, about that time, a friend handed me a book and she's a book whisperer. So if she's telling you to read something, you just read it. You don't even ask questions. I didn't even asked her what it was about. And she didn't say, she just said, I really think you might like this book. And so I read it. It was called Love Warrior and it was written by Glennon Doyle. And our stories seemed enough that something inside me clicked and broke wide open in the most beautiful way. I got up out of the chair I was sitting in when I finished the book and I went to my computer and I learned how to create a website and a blog because I wanted to write and share my story. And I don't think I even intended or knew at that moment that I was going to share our marriage story or speak to our marriage story. I just needed to write because in that book, Lennon offers an invitation to everybody. If you feel the need to write, write. If you feel the need to paint, paint. If it's the need to dance, then dance. And you don't have to be the best at it or a professional. You don't have to earn money at it. If you feel the need to do it, you need to do it. And you can read that invitation for yourself in that book. It's much longer. And um, I took it to heart and I didn't know the first thing about blogging or writing or publishing essays or writing a book, but I started to learn and my wheel started spinning again. So first and foremost, it was that book because that book is why I'm talking to you today. Our stories were similar enough that I found my way forward by hearing my story echoed in somebody else's, somebody who was this fresh voice um, with this beautiful language that spoke straight to me, um, someone that had zero shame for the things she's been through in life, someone who's using everything she's been through in life for the greater good and to, to promote healing and um, strength and sisterhood the world over. So first and foremost there. And then very quickly after that, I found um, Esther Perel. And she is a world-renowned psychotherapist who specializes in couples' trauma and infidelity and betrayal and helping couples find their way forward in that. And she has a book called The State of Affairs. She's got a podcast or two. She's got a TED Talk or two. The one I'm thinking of is called Rethinking Infidelity, and I can't recommend it enough uh, because the way she views betrayal and infidelity was huge in me being able to move forward in our story. I My initial roadblock, more than anything else, was understanding. It took me forever to be able to accept the reality that Eric had cheated because it just was not something that I ever could have predicted in him. It's not something I ever believed him capable of or ever even crossed my mind in our 20 years of marriage at the point where he confessed. So my biggest roadblock was understanding. I It took me ages to understand how this unthinkable thing happened to me in our marriage with Eric of all people. And Esther Perel was huge in that. She explains it in a way, um, she was obviously gifted to do just that and put on this earth just for that because 
I don't know where he would be without her today and without her help and understanding. Well, this is where I think it's so powerful what you're doing because it's hearing the stories of others that give you the inspiration and the strength to continue to move forward as it started with um, reading Glennon's book and then listening to the podcasts. And I think that so many of us can feel so afraid to share our stories. I think that sometimes after we share our stories, we feel exposed, we feel vulnerable, we feel open to criticism. So when you first started sharing your story, um, how, how did you feel once you started putting it out there? Did you, what did it feel like to, to push publish on that first story that you wrote? Well, my first blog post was just an introduction. It was, who am I? Why am I writing? What am I going to be writing about? And I'll have to go back and look because it's been what, two and a half years now. I don't think I referenced my marriage story in that first post because I didn't know I was going to be writing about it at the time. I, the first, actually I have to backtrack. The first thing I did after reading Glennon, reading Glennon's book was um, to open a word doc on my computer and start writing what I thought was going to be a memoir. And I just was struck in and I got about 80 pages in and I got up to present day, which was dealing with my marriage story. And I stopped because it, instead of feeling cathartic and freeing, um, at that point, it started to feel a little uncertain and a little unknown because I was still in the middle of healing from it. And so I stopped at that point and I thought, you know what? I'm not ready to keep at that. I'm not ready to continue at that place I left off in that story. But I still want to write. I still have this burning desire, this need to write. I still have this uncontrollable urge to accept this and invitation Glennon just made to the universe that if you feel the need to write, then please write. And so that's where the blog was born from. I thought, I don't know what I want to write about. I just know I got to do it. It was a, it was a calling. It was, um, there was no denying it. It was just my way forward. And I can't remember ever feeling like that at another point in time. And so I, I paid attention to that. I thought this is important that I feel this way, that this, this is something I have to do. I can't not do it is important. Um, and I remember thinking, I'm going to go ahead and write like six or nine months worth of content before I ever push publish on the very first post, because I don't want to feel any pressure to post and write and blog. I, I want to do it more organically. Um, and so I'm going to write all this content and that way I'll, I'll post once or twice a month and I won't feel under the gun, you know, and I couldn't do it. I didn't have anything written. And something came over me one night once I had the website built. I hadn't published it yet, but it was built and it was ready. And I thought, no, I, I'm not going to wait and build up a library of content to share from. I, I just need to publish. And that moment, that hitting published on the blog with just an introduction post and nothing else felt exhilarating. It felt right. It felt true. It felt necessary. And... Similar to, I don't know where I would be without coming across Esther Perel. I don't know where I would be today if I hadn't pushed publish that day. Well, you very openly share 
so much of, of your journey. And, and I recommend that no matter what trauma you're going through, that folks check out your writing because you, you write so openly and honestly and you're, you're so truthful and vulnerable and, and that is so inspiring. And it's been incredible for me just to watch through your stories, the, the, the healing and the progression. And, and it's not a straight path. You and I have talked about this. It, it's a very circuitous path. And I think that's so important for people to see that because you can make incredible progress, hit a roadblock or a stall, but you can still continue to find a way forward. And I think sometimes we hit a roadblock and, and give up. We think, well, I just can't do it. I'm not doing a good job at this or it's not working. And the evolution of your story shows how difficult and complex, but yet rewarding it can be. Yeah. Um, What comes to mind for me listening to you is all the women I hear from that are so burdened by how much progress they make and how much healing they do only to find themselves knocked on their ass again the next day. And what is repeated over and over and over again is a sense of out of nowhere, this came up and now I'm right back where I started or it feels like I am. And what I want to say to them is it's not out of nowhere. It's out of the worst trauma you've ever endured in your entire life. Or at least one of them, or at least right up there in the top three. And it's not out of nowhere. <laughs> it's out of a deep sense of loss and mourning and grief, um, anger and resentment and all of the things that we want to push away when they come at us in life. And so there's this cycle of pushing this stuff away, but okay, today I feel strong enough to kind of work through some of it, but the next day I don't, I got to push it away again. And it's, um, you know, making progress and learning to forgive only to feel like, wait, I know I forgave you yesterday, but today I'm angry and, and hurt all over again. And do I have a right to be because I just forgave you? And what does that mean? And, and it's just, it's, it's not straight. It's not easy. There's no timeline for it. There's no expectation for when you should be healed. There's, there's no reasonable expectation for how you should heal. Um, healing. What do, what do I like to say? It's a, it's a, confounding conundrum. It's a riddle wrapped in a maze in a foreign city in a strange country. It's just, you've no idea how hard it is or how perplexing or intricate until you're in the middle of it and doing it. And that's why you can't listen to people who say, can you just get on with it already? Can you just get over it? Why are you still talking about this? Because when, when people say that, it's pretty clear that they haven't lived through something similar. Mm-hmm. And my other belief is that when they say, can't you just get over this already. What they're really saying is you're making me uncomfortable with your pain and suffering and I'm ready to be done with that. (laughs) And gosh, if, if they think they're uncomfortable in their pain and suffering, (laughs) they're being pretty short-sighted about what yours must feel like. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that there's this expectation that after a certain point of time, well, you're fine. And, and why are you, like you say, why are you still talking about this? And 
our timeline is very similar, Jody, and it's been four years for me as well. And I, I still have days where I wake up and I feel like I'm back at square one. And I have an incredibly wise friend who has held my hand along this entire journey. And I would call her on these days just absolutely panicked, thinking, oh, I thought I was basically healed. I thought I was fine. And now I feel like I did day one. And and she said, you are going to continue to find yourself back here. But what you now know is that you will you will be able to move forward. So you sit today and you acknowledge the feelings that you have. They are valid. They're where you are today. Don't try to push them away. Know that you're going to spend shorter and shorter periods of time back at square one. But when you love as deeply as you do, there's just simply no getting over it. And there's going to be triggers throughout your life that bring you back to that initial feeling of loss and grief. And I think that's so important for people to to never lose hope. If you find yourself back feeling at square one, you will you will continue to move forward. You're not going to to stay there forever. Exactly. And what I love to point out for people who feel like that, like they're not making any progress and um, you know, losing faith in themselves and, and being frustrated with themselves um, for their pace is, hold on, okay, you feel like you're back at square one, but wait a minute, really look back just long enough to remember how you felt at square one on day one at ground zero in that moment and compare that to how you feel today. And it's never the same. And all my, um, and all the people I've talked to, which is hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands by now, only one person has ever said to me, nope, I still feel the same, the exact same amount of pain that I did six years ago. I still feel it today. So it's not very common that that happens. And it's a really great way to survey the progress that you did not think that you're making. And in response to her, gosh, so much love and empathy for that woman be, I think that there's something to be learned in what she said in that this is another Dr. Philism. I feel there's a certain payoff to staying steeped in pain. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be really scary to let joy back in because we know what it feels like when all joy leaves, when all joy is taken away. And when we're uncertain of when we're ever going to feel any joy again, we know what that feels like. And so if we allow her back and her companion happiness, if we allow them back, then it's very scary because we know at any minute they could be gone again. And so sometimes it's easier to stay steeped in that pain because we already know what that feels like. We're already used to that and we don't have this sense of loss of anything. And so I understand why she's choosing that. However, I hope she makes a different choice someday because you're right. There is progress to be made. Um, We just have to realize that we're doing it whether whether we think we are or not. Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you a question. How does Eric feel about you so openly sharing your family's journey? Mm-hmm. He has been a staunch supporter since day one. He has always told me, as long as I've known him, you should write. You should write a book. You need to get a job writing. And um, I've been told that by more than one person, but it wasn't anything I embodied or agreed with at the time. I mean, just because you can do something doesn't always mean you should. Um, And I'd already learned that 
when you, when you like something, when you enjoy it, when you try to um, make money at it or make a living at it, sometimes it kills that joy that you get from that, that art or that craft. And, and so it just never was something I wanted to do until this moment I did. And, and then I ended up writing about our marriage story. <laughs> I think I'm sure one of his initial reactions must have been, okay, well, that's not really what I meant or what I was hoping for. Right. <laughs> but he, so from the beginning, I brought him into this um, decision of mine. I wasn't ever asking permission. I was telling him, hey, in response to what's happened, this is what I'd like to do. Um, I still take big exception to the way our story was told in the media and the news. I think it was done so irresponsibly. Um, and so, um, the word is escaping maliciously. I don't feel like it was, I feel like it was very pointed, um, in its goal and its mission, um, the people that took control of that story in our community. And, um, He, he was on board from the beginning, and every time I would write something about our marriage, I would have him read it first to offer me, kind of to be my editor, to check um, for mistakes or typos, but also to hear firsthand what I was writing before anybody else, uh, because that was important to me, that he knew exactly what I was writing, um, that he had some warning, he had some, um, you know, distance between um, knowing what was written and when it was going to be posted publicly. Um, and never once in all the pieces I sent him, did he, did he complain about anything? Did he say, please change this? Did he say, please leave that out? Um, he didn't offer any content edits whatsoever and he was okay with everything. Um, he's, he's so incredibly helpful still today in the process because I show him all the messages all the private messages and emails that come in from women and some men uh, who are so encouraged by our story, who found hope in our story and who have questions about how to make it through their own story. And I try really hard not to give advice because I don't think I have any, who am I to tell anybody what to do? But I also don't think people really want advice, even when they're asking for it. I don't think they want it. I think they want to figure out their way forward on their own um, and get that sense of accomplishment that comes from doing so. But I think they just want to feel supported and listened to, and they want a safe space for their story. And so that's what I offer people because too many people don't have anybody to talk to about infidelity. It's so taboo in our society, even though it happens in such a high percentage of marriages, it's, it's suspected that we won't talk about it or um, disclose it publicly. And I take big exception to that too, because I think that it's hard enough to, to live through the trauma of infidelity and try and heal from it with, without having to do it in silence and secrecy and be blanketed by this sense of shame. Um, so he helps me respond to these people with his perspective that I can't do, right? It's, it's his perspective, it's his story, um, and only he has the answers that some people are looking for, and he's very willing to offer those up for people. And instead of offering any kind of advice, I try really hard to just say what worked for us and what didn't, um, what was a roadblock and what was a, you know, a key to the gate to moving forward. And um, let me read you. We have this little book 
um, that we write little love notes to each other in. And we've been doing so, I don't know, I have to go back and look, somewhere between 10 and 15 years. And when we just still move, we just write a little note in our book. And this is one that he wrote a while back in response to my writing. So this was, oh my gosh, this was almost two years ago. So he wrote this on February 13th of 2018. He wrote, Jody, you amaze me. Your strength and resolve inspire me. The talent of your writing is growing every day. Your focus of writing to help others is so unselfish. You are an awesome example for me and for others. I know your heart and your kindness and your love. I am so grateful to continue this journey with you. I am enjoying the work because it is so rewarding and I will continue to strive to show you my love and give you my first and my best babe. I love you. So that's how he feels about it. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that it's incredible that he is so behind you and supporting because it's not only supporting you, I think it supports him and it, and it, it supports all the others who are reaching out to you looking for information. It, it just strengthens your, your story. And I think that that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. And I will say too, that at a certain point, so he's not on social media. He just recently, um, started a Twitter account. Actually, our daughter started it for him. And he's only <laughs> he wants to just talk to Colin Coward and talk sports. That's all he wants to be on Twitter for. Uh, but he's not on any other social media platform. And so he doesn't see what I do online and, and on those platforms. He only ever gets my published blog posts because he's a subscriber. And I stopped running them by him ages ago because I, he was fine with everything. And um, I'm never going to bash him. And I'm never going to talk in a way that's demeaning or derogatory because those aren't things that I have in my heart for him. Um, everything I write is um, to lift him up and help him heal and, and help him in his own journey towards self-forgiveness, which has been really hard for him. And I always tell him of the two of us, I had the easier job in forgiving him, but he still needs to forgive himself and he's still working toward that. Um, and it's so important that he does because if he can't forgive himself, that's going to have a detrimental effect on our relationship. And so everything I write is meant to to help him in that vein um, while telling the truth about our story and how we recovered from it. He was only ever seeing my published blog posts, and I only um, publish a post once or twice a month. And all he was seeing are these pieces, you know, years later about our marriage. And he did, I, I check in with him every so often, hey, you still good? You still okay with my voice and the way I'm using it? Not that I'm asking permission, just that I'm bringing him in to it. And he said not long ago, well, you know, now that you're asking again and mentioning it, I do wonder, you know, if you're ever going to write about anything else, is this all you're ever going to write about? You know, because he's a man, he's a compartmentalizer. I'm sure in his ideal world, we'd be over this and done and never mention it again. But that's, that's not me. I'm a processor and an overthinker. And that's how I deal with things. And now that I know I can use our story for good in the world, I'm not likely to stop using it anytime soon. And I was like, oh, honey, you need to come, you know, look on my Facebook page and my Instagram feed for a while and see that I'm writing about friendship and I'm writing about family. I'm writing about parenting. I'm writing about motherhood. I'm writing about teenagers. I'm writing about everything under the sun in addition to our marriage story, all the hard stuff, all the stuff that is really hard to talk about um, and to put out there, but the stuff that I know that helps the most. 
And so that's why I do it. So once he was aware of all the other things I was doing with my voice and my platform, he had an increased level of comfortability of, oh, okay, all right, that feels better to me. What would you say you've learned throughout this process of writing and of so openly sharing your story? There's this Ernest Hemingway quote that I just adore. He wrote, write hard and clear about what hurts. And can't you just see him hunched mm-hmm. over in his little Parisian cafe, <laughs> with a red jacket and cigarette, writing that? I can see it. And he's not the only one that's written something similar. And the reason that they offer this advice is because it's so powerful. It's, it's, it works. And whether it's writing or whether you're podcasting or whether you're writing lyrics to songs, there's something that happens when you write it that helps you become free of it. And there's something that happens when you share it that elevates your spirit and helps you achieve this alchemy in between what was terrible and unthinkable, helps you make it this thing that's, that's amazing and good and helpful and full of hope for people. We can't always say what we need to say, right? We can't always find the words or that, that courage, I guess, or that space of vulnerability to say what we want to say to people, what we need to say in order to be free of the things that weigh us down. But everybody can write them. Every single person in this world, whether you write them on the back of a napkin at a restaurant and you throw it in the garbage on your way out, whether you write it in a journal and you burn it in your backyard and nobody ever sees it, everybody can write about it. And in doing so, everybody can get a little freer from it. Yeah, and that's what I that's what I love about sharing stories is is not only is it helpful for others to feel less alone, there's something beautiful in sharing your own truth and something so powerful in that. So you and I both share a complicated relationship with perfection. And until I read Brene Brown's The The Gifts Gifts of of Imperfection, I didn't realize that that was even a thing and that that could be a problem. (laughs) So I, I love the name of your blog, Utter Imperfection. Do you still struggle with perfection? Yes. And I hate admitting that because I, I don't want to. <laughs> Perfect is gross. It's so gross. It's not relatable. It doesn't endear people to us. There's nothing good about perfection. It doesn't even exist. And yet, I still catch myself striving for it. It's so frustrating. And what's especially frustrating about it today is I feel like perfection in response to my loathing of it has gotten sneaky and crafty. And it... it it like camouflages itself and I don't recognize it for a long time until all of a sudden I realize, oh my gosh, I am angry because I was expecting perfection from that person. Or this feels janky to me because I thought it would be this way and I really expected and, and, and hoped it would be this way, which would have been a perfect way. And, and so I'll catch myself um, maybe at least easier than I used to. So that's progress. Um, but I'm not immune to it. And I don't know where it comes from because I know it's not from God. I know that's not his expectation for our lives. I know that we make mistakes for a reason while we're here roaming this earth. 
And that's to learn from them and grow from them. That's to further unfurl into the person that we're meant to become. We can't get there any other way than by making a mistake and learning from it. It's, we're, we're wired to make these mistakes. So I don't know where it comes from. Um, it must be a societal thing we've all created for each other. And though, and though we're all rallying against it to some extent in our lives, there are still Instagram feeds full of perfect photos and um, perfectly dressed people and perfect vacations and perfect families and perfect lives and perfect jobs. And anytime I see that, I unfollow, I block, I, <laughs> because it's not helpful, <laughs> only harmful. Um, so yeah, to answer your question in a way I never do shortly, I answered the long way. Yes. <laughs> what would you say some of the most beautiful gifts are that have come because of your journey? Hmm. Friendships, um, and a new sense of community, not in spite of the things that I've been through, but directly because of them, uh, one of my best friends today, I met online through a writer's group. Um, she had been reading from me, and I didn't know that, but she reached out in an email and said, hey, I have this, this thing I wrote. Could you read it and talk to me about it? And it was breathtaking and moving, and, uh, and we started going back and forth over this piece she had written. And today, she's one of my best friends in this world, and... Um, what started as an online friendship became an in-person friendship. I've traveled to see her and um, spend time with her and we've met up in different places. And she's somebody I can just see sitting on the porch in a rocking chair with when we can't see, we can't hear, all we can do is feel each other's presence. And that came from opening my mouth and telling my story and, and not being afraid of my truth, but honoring it. And, um, the sense of community that I felt for people to be able to have at least one soft place for their story to land if they don't have that anywhere else in their lives is precious to me. Um, you know, as we age, I think um, everything that we go through in midlife, which is um, turning out to be really beautiful, but not easy. One of those things is where, where are my, uh, new and next friendships going to come from because you know it's not it's not that hard to make friends when your kids are little because they're sort of built into your neighborhood or your school or their sports teams or their dance recitals or whatever they're doing there's other parents doing that there too and it's kind of easy to just link arms with those parents in that at least for that time period whether or not you're going to be lifelong friends remains to be seen but when those activities cease and when your children age a lot of those friendships just sort of fall away naturally because they were friendships for a season and so I think at that at this period this middle age um period and um, staring down an empty nest or living through it you kind of wonder well what's next and where's next going to even come from and how do I, I how do I help next happen and this is all just sort of unfolded for me and it's it's been really really beautiful and you know I don't know I don't talk very often with my friends and family in real life about our marriage story because it's, it's done. It's, um, it's been dealt with and we've healed from it. So it's not something um, that anybody brings up to me or that I bring up or feel the need to, but I still have a need to, to talk about our story and to use it for good. Um, and I can do that online in a way that's appreciated um, and in the publishing world in a way that's valued and 
used to help so many other people feel at home in their own similar stories and their own hearts and minds and relationships. And I don't know if I'm able to do that in, in person with our, my friends and family or not. Um, cause they're not talking about, it, I'm not talking about it, but in response to any of those people that may wonder, well, gosh, is she ever going to move on? There's a beautiful Ted talk to look up on the topic of moving forward rather than moving on because trauma changes us. It rewires our brain. It affects us deeply. It shapes who we are. And there's no moving on from that. It's now part of us. It's now part of our story. There's only moving forward with it. And this is my way of doing that. And those gifts of um, newfound friendship and community are priceless. Another quote that I just read recently and, and really latched onto was in a book I'm reading for my book club. And here's the quote. It says, trauma is a toxin that hooks into our hair and organs and blood and becomes part of us the way heavy metals do. Our body is nothing more than a layering of flesh around everything ingested and experienced. And my response to that was, yeah, <laughs> that's trauma. And how, how, pray tell, would you move on from that? You don't. Yeah. Because it's part of you. It is you. There's moving forward and finding ways to use it um, and not be burdened by it for the rest of your life. But there is no moving on from trauma. Yeah, I agree. It just becomes something that's a part of you. And and um, and you at some point, you learn how to integrate that into who you are and to find the beautiful aspects of what that is. Yes, hopefully. That's the goal. <laughs> There are days when you're dealing with trauma that it feels like you're, you know, standing on a stretch of ocean in Mexico where you can barely stand up in the waves because they come with such force and such frequency that they knock you over and you stand back up before you can get your footing. The next one knocks you over again. And that's how the triggers and healing feels sometimes um, like you're powerless against it. And day by day over time that changes and um, you want to say all of a sudden though it's nothing like all of a sudden but it has this sensation when you finally recognize it of all of a sudden I can stand up against this wave look at me mm -hmm. I am strong enough and I have the stamina to take this wave and the next one too and when that happens it's just it's just so affirming and it's just um, it's something we're talking about it's something worth being honest about so that the next person knows that they're going to get there too. They just aren't there yet. Um, they can't possibly imagine it because they haven't experienced it for themselves. But when you find an authentic voice that you can um, trust and relate to, then it's easier to believe that those things are coming for you too. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Jody, what's your greatest hope? Just one. <laughs> <laughs> or hopes. <laughs> I don't know. You know, immediately where my mind goes with this, and that it um, informs the way I parent on a daily basis, um, and it's not necessarily related to what we've been talking to, but it, um, my mind goes to my kids, um, and I hope that they want to come back home. I hope they want to come back home as adults. I want them to want to be here with us. I 
that's been one of the hardest parts of living through this unthinkable thing is worrying about how it affects them and how it will play out in their lives. And so every day when I'm talking to them, working with them, parenting them, I'm thinking, how do I need to parent? How do I need to treat them? How do I need to behave with them so that they want to come home? When it's finally their choice and they don't have to be here for shelter or for food. You know, I'm asked a lot um, how my kids view me sharing my marriage story, our family story so publicly. And most of the time, I just answer how I think they view it. Because again, this isn't something they want to talk about with me. They're aware of what I do, um, but they don't want to talk about it. And it's only through certain comments here or remarks there or or a general um, sense I get that I can interpret how they feel about what I do. And I thought today, you know what, and anticipating maybe you'd ask that question too. I thought, I think I'm going to do something really brave and I think I'm going to ask them. And I even told my husband, I said, here's what I think I'm going to do. I think I'm going to ask each kid how they view me sharing our, our family story. And it took a lot of guts to do that because I was afraid of the answer um, but I'm glad I did. And they actually both responded. They only expected one to respond. And the result is I realize still nothing's really changed. Um, the way I've chosen and needed to move forward in my marriage and in our family is has been a zero-sum game for my kids. They're, they view it very differently and approach it very differently. And they've processed it very differently from the start. Um, and I have a boy and a girl, young man and young woman. And, and so that's not surprising to me because we're the genders are so very different usually. Um, but one of them said, just like I thought they would, that at first they didn't really like it because it had been talked about and they didn't understand why me talking about it over and over again was helpful to me. But now they really like it. One of the things they really like about it is that they're learning parts and pieces of the story that they're grateful to be learning, um, both from me and from Eric. Um, And they were specific about something they learned and something they read recently. And so overall it's it's turned into something positive for that child. For the other one, um, they said no, don't like it makes me feel exposed and um, that wasn't surprising to me Um, exposed and uncomfortable in rereading what that child wrote and I want to one of the biggest things I'm working on with my kids right now and the way I parent is being a better listener this listening is the most beautiful language but it's never spoken. And so that's why it's the hardest one to learn. At least it has been for me. So I'm trying really hard to just listen to that response and allow space for it. 
because the defensive me wants to come back and say, but I didn't expose us. I'm not the one that made our family uncomfortable. Other people did that to us. And they did that for a long time and they still do it. It still comes up in the news and the media and our community from time to time. I'm not the one that did that. I'm the one that took control of that. And I'm the one that's using it for good inside other marriages and other families. But instead of saying all that, I'm just gonna listen and allow space for that reaction. But I hope that someday that both kids can see, wow. That's horrible and thinkable, but it happens more often than it doesn't really, sadly. This horrible and thinkable thing did not define my mom. It didn't destroy her. It didn't define my parents' marriage. It didn't destroy it. It strengthened it and it made it better. And one of the things I love that Esther Perel wrote is she explained that sometimes it takes something so traumatic like an affair to wake people up to what they're risking, to what they are about to lose. And that so often we cannot stay married to someone that betrays us, but often we can stay with that person and we can start a brand new marriage. And that is exactly what Eric and I were doing at the moment that I read that and I just was so strengthened by it. And I hope that they can look back and see. I was uncomfortable through a lot of that, but I also grew as a person and um, and grew my abilities to be empathetic and understanding and, and to choose love, even when I don't always feel like it. I hope they're, they're able to come around to saying and believing things like that someday. Well, and I think sometimes children have a difficult time separating their feelings of being protective and worried for their parent. I think that, that they come from this place of just so so much wanting everything to be perfect for their parents. They don't want their parents to be hurting or uncomfortable. And I think that that's their, one of their guiding principles as well as they just simply don't have the life experience to understand the complexities of some of the situations that adults find themselves in. And so I think that it's a very confusing time. It's it's confusing because they just don't have the information, the life experience, very much colored by their their love and their emotions. And I just think it's a really confusing and complex time for our children. Yeah, it is. And, and I think that there's so much to our marriage story that will really empower them in the future when they're in a space of willing, of being able and willing and ready to absorb it and, and use it in that manner. And, you know, because they don't like to talk about it and, I, and we're honoring that, there's just, there's so much that they don't know that I think would be powerful and would affect them same ways it has me and I think would open their eyes up to why I do what I do, why I'm still doing it and why I don't ever see a, a point at which I won't be doing it. Um, things like, you know, one of Eric's, he lost his job over his choice to have an affair with a, a co-worker and, 
as he's been trying to rebuild um, his professional footing and, and find his way forward and provide for our family, um, it's been really difficult in this community. And thank God that there's people that can look right past the mistake he made in his personal life and see that the value that he brings to any organization or any business is untold and have championed him and partnered with him and um, given him a leg up and, and helped him find his way forward. Thank God for those people. But there have also been people in our community that have said things like this to my husband. They've said, look, we, we think you're, um, you know, right for this job and um, we can see you in this role, but um, could you do something about cleaning up the internet about your story? They wanted him to find a way to remove the links to the news stories that reported on his affair and his leaving the sheriff's office here. And he didn't tell me about that for a long time, um, but he looked into it and he found a place that was gonna charge him $6,000 a link to remove the link from the internet. And he was seriously considering trying to figure out a way to do that so that he could make these prospective employers happy and, um, and be offered this job. And my heart just broke into a million pieces when he finally told me that story. I just, I think it so short-sighted and so, I don't know of any other word, just short-sighted to ask a person, a human being to erase their past um, so we can pretend like it didn't happen and, and ignore that and, and just move forward. And um, in addition, that just smelled like scam from one end to the other to me that a link could actually be removed from the internet. <laughs> and it, thank God that when that happened and when he told me about that, I had already been writing the best parts of our story and the parts that people really need to hear, the parts that provide hope and, and understanding and validation that we are not our mistakes. We are more so what we do after. Thank God I had already been doing that. Um, and that, that all my links exist, um, I think overshadows and outweighs, um, the links that, that, that I didn't create and that um, told our story for us. Well, and I think that was one of the reasons that you, you wanted to start writing was that, that initially your story was being told not by you and from, from a, a certain vantage point. And so one of the reasons that you wanted to share your story was not to talk so much about what had happened, but also really share the beautiful parts of your story. And I think that that's what's really powerful is that, yes, there was a choice that was made. And a lot of your story is focusing on how you moved forward from that and the things that have happened since then. And that's where I think that it's so powerful that you're able to share that. And I think that's very, that's what provides hope for, for people. Yeah, and, and wrapping that back around to the kids is I hope someday that they're able to see, okay, we finally get what she was doing and why. Mm-hmm. We're going to see all the good that came from it. I, I know that they they just can't right now, and I understand why. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess that's my biggest hope is that they can someday and that they still come home and 
and that we're a stronger family because of all of this, not in spite of it. What do you love most about your marriage with Eric today? I love that we love each other for no reason today, for no reason and without conditions. And we learned how to do that. I was listening to a podcast. It was Super Soul Sundays with Oprah, and she was interviewing um, A.R. Bernard. He's a pastor, I think, of the largest male congregation in New York, if I remember that right. And he was detailing how bad he used to be at marriage and how often he let his wife down in the ways he did so. And he wrote that everything changed when he realized that the way he should actually be loving his wife is for no reason and without conditions. Because when we attach conditions for why we will love somebody, when those conditions and reasons aren't met, we lose all reason to love. And if we were to do that with each other, no one would ever stay married. No one would ever stay in a friendship. No one would ever want to remain in a family. It's, it's not the right way to love with reasons and conditions. And we recognize that as our truth. And we still embody that today. And the other thing that I love the most about us is today we give each other our first and our best because we learned the hard way what happens when we give our first and our best to others. That's something that we learned through a book that Eric sourced early on in our recovery. It's titled, What Did You Expect? Redeeming the, the Realities of Marriage. And Paul David Tripp, another pastor, wrote that. And that was his single biggest piece of advice for all the couples that he counseled was give each other your first and your best. And it makes a big difference. When we only ever give of what we have left over, we're just, we're just not getting enough and we're not giving each other enough. And so now it's, it's our first and our best to each other and everybody else gets what's left over. And that was a very um, important switcheroo. In fact, you write about that in, and that's on your website, and, and individuals can, can read that. It's very powerful, and I, I love that, and I think that it's such an important thing to be thinking about. Exactly, and, and what those two things have done for us today, loving for no reason without conditions and giving each other our first and our best, has um, built this new marriage barometer for us, and before, our barometer was so faulty, it didn't work. We didn't pay attention to it. Um, and until it was almost too late. And, and today, our barometer is so sensitive. Um, when, we're, when we fail to give each other our first and our best, or you know, we're sliding back into the old patterns of the cap- attaching conditions for um, feeling and, and giving love, we realize it really quickly now, and we correct it. Um, we don't let anything go on for days or ages unsolved or swept under the rug. And um, I think the, the, the most visible result of all of this is when we fight today, and we still do, we still fight all the time about all the stuff married people fight about, but we fight for three minutes and we haven't had a fight longer than three minutes in years. And our fights used to last anywhere from three days to three weeks to three months. And there were some some humdingers that we could never solve. There were like three years in length. And today, because of that barometer and because of what we learned, it's like, we get into it, we get hot and heavy, we get out of it because it doesn't feel good. We don't want it. Um, 
we want to move forward from that thing as quickly as possible. And we, we do the work. We've done the work to be able to do that. And it's taken all this time. It wasn't easy. It wasn't quick. It wasn't intuitive. Um, knowing what you want out of marriage does not translate into knowing how to achieve that in your marriage. I've noticed. And um, so, you know, love didn't die for either one of us. And, and I know that's God. And, um, what we can do today is be thankful and show gratitude to God to by loving the way we now understand and know love was intended. Well, I think there's no easy way around anything. The only way is is through it. And as you say, none of us necessarily know the way. And it's finding your finding your path each step along the way. Um, Jody, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you'd like our listeners to know? Um, you know, I'm so long-winded. Gosh, I try not to be in still. I am, but I wanted to address a couple other uh, resources. When you asked where I turned to inspiration, what resources I used, um, there's a couple more I'd like to offer people. And uh, one of those is, it was a podcast. It was called Dear Sugars. I don't think it's running anymore, but I think all the episodes still exist. And it's with author Cheryl Strange. She wrote Wild. And um, her partner on that podcast was Steve Almond. And they did a four-part series on infidelity. And it's four parts because it was only going to be a, a, a single episode. But the response and the outreach and response to that episode was so great that they realized, oh, wow, people want to hear about this topic. People need a place to go and listen and learn about infidelity. And it turned into a four-part series. One part is from the perspective of the betrayed. One part is from the perspective of the cheater. One part is the perspective of the other woman. And then the fourth part was with Esther Perel. They interviewed her. And that's where I first came to know about her. So that series is their most downloaded, most listened to um, series of episodes in their entire podcast history. And then the other um, current podcast um, and some friends I've made in this gig are Danielle and Adam Silverstein, and they produce the Marriage and Martinis podcast. And they are a couple of truth tellers extraordinaire, and they just tell you what they struggle with in their marriage and how they overcome it and how they don't, how they're still struggling to, how they're trying desperately to learn to. Um, and their voices are amazing in this realm and to making you feel more at home in your own, in your own relationship, in your own marriage. And I can't recommend tuning into them enough. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you for, for sharing those. And I will put those in the show notes so that listeners are able to easily access those. I think that's what's so helpful for individuals struggling with whether it's infidelity or another kind of trauma is listening to stories of others who've been in the struggle and have found a way forward. Jody, I've absolutely loved getting to know you. I, I felt when you and I met face-to-face that We've known each other forever, and I so appreciate you opening your heart and sharing some of your most incredibly painful moments with me. I'm honored, and it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for being one of those new friends I found and sharing my story. Thanks, Jody. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe. 
to the Unexpected Launch podcast. Thank you to Duncan Music Project, who produced this episode and composed the music.